Good morning, everybody. Good morning. Good morning. So nice to be here. I'm Laura. Um, I'm a compulsive overeater. And uh, Marta. Marta L. Marta L. Compulsive overeater. Yeah, we're, go we're going to share. I'll share for the first half, and Marta will share for the second half. Um, some of you know me. I've been here before. Um, some of you know me even from not being here. Um, I've been in OA a long time. Um, came in in 1981. Went to my first meeting in January of 18, 1981. Went to my second meeting in June of 1981. Don't recommend that for anybody to wait six months between their first two meetings. But that's what happened for me. <clears throat> uh, and since June of uh, 1981, I've been coming back. Um, very grateful to say. Um, I really do believe, and I... I believe that my recovery began when I first walked into my first meeting in January of 1981, even though I was back out there eating and trying all kinds of tricks to help myself stop eating. And um, I didn't really have much program in me, but I believe my recovery started the minute I walked into a room. Um, so anyway, um, today, since you know, so many of you have heard me before, I didn't want to give my whole uh, but I don't know, I think every time I come I probably say something different, but I wanted to uh, focus on, because this is a first step meeting as I understand on the first Sunday of the, of the month, um, I wanted to focus on the first step. And the first step is so um, important in my life regardless of whether it's my first meeting or it's my 3,000th meeting, I don't know, Is it could it be 3,000? I don't know, but however many after all these years. Um, because the, the, oh, I can't think of the word I want to say, but the um, basic idea of the first step is powerlessness, right? And I, yeah, right. <laughs> so powerlessness is addressed two times in the first step. Um, the step is we admitted we were powerless over food. That's what help, helps us identify as, you know, gets us in the door, right? And the other part is, dash, dash, it's completely different than the first part. Our lives are unmanageable. Well, even after I put the food down, in fact, especially after I put the food down, my life is even more unmanageable. So, um, I felt that um, talking about powerlessness as a th theme, that was the word I was looking for, the theme through um, uh, those chapters might be a, an important thing for me to look at. So um, step one is part, even though it's the beginning, step one is part of every step. It propels me to take the action of the next step. But my powerlessness is what propels me to take action. Um, it's my powerlessness that creates the need for power. Powerlessness means power. I, I made notes, like a sort of a script, so I didn't have to keep going back and forth into the book. And um, so if I read a little bit too much, please forgive me. But this is my story, so I mean, this, I don't really have to read it word for word. I mean, it, it's been 37 years, 38 years since I've been in program. Which is, by the way, I came in, I was just 30. So I've been in program substantially longer than I wasn't in program, which is pretty neat, I think. <laughs> I'm pretty excited about that. 
Um, so before I travel through the doctor's opinion and Bill's story, and there's a solution and more about alcoholism, finding step one ideas to pursue, I'll give you a quick idea, a history of what it was like and what happened and what it's like now. And um, are you going to let me know in a half hours? You can look up there. Oh, I can look up there. That's right. It's four minutes so far. Okay, here we go. Um, what what it's like now in my life. So. Um, I came into OA, I was just 30, and I did, when I did my eating history, I realized I had food, I was told to write a history of my food-related uh, events, beginning with the first time I, uh, my, food re, my food history, beginning with the first time I remembered food-related events. So I was able to write food-related events from when I was a very young child, like five and six, um, even though I don't think I was actively a compulsive overeater at the time. My compulsive overeating really, so I probably was all along, and I was in chubby sizes, which I don't even think they have today. Um, they just, I don't know how they do it, but um, I was in chubby sizes, but I really wasn't obese or anything like that. I don't know why I had to wear chubby sizes, but I did. And... Um, um, but the, the, the real straw that broke the camel's back happened when I was uh, about 13. When I, um, I think I was in seventh grade, and I had gone from being 90 pounds in sixth grade to being like 140 in seventh grade. Or, yeah. And like that was abhorrent. And I hadn't grown. I mean, it's not like I had a, a, sh a shoot up in height. And it was like, oh my God, you know? And that's when the dieting began. And I think the dieting is as insidious in my uh, disease history as the food, quite honestly. Um, I was scared to death when my daughter started talking about dieting when she was young, you know, how the kids do, uh, because I just knew where it took me. Anyway, so my teens were, you know, up and down, uh, lots of very, very insane kind of dieting with girlfriends, you know. Um, all through, getting thin for, you know, right occasions and all that kind of thing. And I think I've shared in this room, I got real thin for high school graduation and somebody said, oh, Laura, you look so great. And I said, oh, thanks, but I'm on my way back up again. Mm -hmm. And I was like 118 pounds. And I, I mean, I looked good. I, I think I even had three diamonds in my legs, which is what we were trying to get. I don't know if anybody remembers that, but, you know, like, which is, you really have to be too skinny to have three diamonds in your legs. But um, um, we'll talk about more about that after the meeting. Um, <laughs> but in any event, um, I knew I was on the way back up, even though I was a very thin woman at that time, a young girl. Anyway, so through my 20s, I, you know, I yo-yoed up and down. And then when I was 28, I had my first child, and... That was like, hallelujah. I did not have to worry about my weight at all. In fact, they wanted me to get fat. They wanted me to. The clothes were meant to expand, right? And back in the day, they didn't wear form 40 showing baby bumps. No, no, no. They were like out, you know, like you could expand and nobody knew it. I mean, now, you know, you got to keep the rest of your body pretty much in shape. Mine didn't stay in shape. I needed to go up to the next size in pants because um, they don't have a panels that expand for your thighs like they had panels that expanded for your tummy. Um, 
seriously. And that's where I gave my weight in my thigh. So that's not uncommon. Anyway, so yes, it was the pregnancy that broke, you know, the, the next straw for me. And uh, after when he was born, and I weighed almost 190 pounds when he was born, and I was only 5'3", and I couldn't get down below 160, which was, oh my God, that was like, that was territory that I did not ever want to be in. I'm, you know, I'm a fairly small person and uh, fairly small boned, and that was like really high for me. And I didn't say this, but there's a lot of compulsive eating in my family, a lot of dieting, a lot of, you know, a lot of shame around being fat and all that kind of stuff. So um, nobody shamed me, but they had their own shame about it. And that's, that's the shame that I caught was the shame that everybody else felt about being fat. Um, so anyway, that's when I started um, going to, oh, I was home at home and I started going to um, the weight clubs in earnest and um, my eating got horrible after I was home and not working. Because when I was working, at least I couldn't eat all day long, only during certain times, right? But now I could eat all day long. And uh, that's how I ended up in OA in um, January of 1981. Thinking it was a diet club, walking into it, fully expecting to be like, uh, we had, weight, uh, we had a diet workshop back in Cincinnati, but like a Weight Watchers or a diet workshop. I had no idea what it was. Came in, spent the next six months uh, struggling with what I thought was this, um, the religion that I saw in OA. And I took six months for someone to say to me, don't confuse religion and spirituality, which gave me the permission to come back and, uh, and try OA again, which I did. So I came in back in June of 81. and. I worked this program in earnest the best I could, given the people around me, teaching me, you know, I wanted to learn. Um, I was absent for a few months, and then I uh, lost my abstinence, and then I struggled for the next nine months until <clears throat> I got the abstinence that I, thank God, I have today, which came in May of 1982, which is sort of like amazingly a miracle. I almost don't want to say it because it doesn't sound real. It really doesn't sound real. Like, how could anybody be abstinent since May of 1980? <laughs> <sighs> it's a miracle. It's a miracle. So anyway, um, so I, I broke down my history in a way because I want to tell you what happened and then what it's like now by the inventories that I did. I did an inventory my first year it was, um, we, there was this red book uh, written by a guy out in California, Bill B, I think his name was. Anyway, he had a method for doing inventories, which was historical. You were supposed to write what you thought your parents thought about you before you were born, um, and then do your life in little chunks of like preschool and elementary school and blah, 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 oh, to the present. So I did that, and there were some elements of the big book in that, you know, looking at resentment and selfishness and dishonesty, no, no, selfish, no, resentment, sex, and fear, but in a general way, certainly not the way that we do when we study and work through the big book now. But the elements of it, big book elements were always there. Second inventory, when, after I got my abstinence, that was through how, I had to do the 170 questions. 170 questions. Did you ever have sex with an animal? Did you ever have sex with a man who had sex with an animal? No, no, no that's for blood. That's for blood. Um, you know, 
you know, all these questions, 170 crazy, crazy, some of them were crazy, some of them weren't crazy, but um, that's what we answered, 170 questions. Um, a little bit of big book in there too. There was a little bit of big book in there too, looking at sex, obviously, and fear and resentment. The third inventory I did was an AWOL and 20 years ago when I first moved to um, this area. I never heard of an AWOL. AWOL, in case you don't know, means a way of life. Um, it was a prescribed method of going through the steps over a year. It was, uh, we had the meetings in my house because somebody uh, asked me to help out. I didn't even want to be part of this AWOL, but they asked me to help out. It ended up being very, very transformational for me and very helpful. Another inventory done. I don't recall the exact nature of that inventory. It could have been too much because we met weekly and it was just over a month, like each step was a month. So I'm not sure the depth of it, but it also had big book elements because we read the big book, pieces of the big book. And um, keep, keep this in mind, we're just pieces all along. How had pieces of the big book and the 12 and 12, the A, 12 and 12, and then in 2013, I was introduced to A Vision for You, which many of you know about that meeting, and um, did the inventory with a big book guy, by big book, completely by the big book. It was really transformational. Each one of them was so helpful, and each one of them peeled away another layer of me. Um, and then last year I did a workshop for a year and did another one. There were less, certainly less people to do, but the depth of that um, inventory was amazing. In fact, um, we spent time on the third column, the third column of the resentment inventory, which, you know, like, what did it affect your self, self uh, your, uh, what is it, your pocketbook, your self-esteem, you know, those three or four questions. And I just checked off the boxes in the previous one. This one, you just really did an in-depth thing of how you, how, the how you thought the world should be looking at you. Oh my God, I, I mean, so that was very, very transformational also. I look forward to doing another one, God knows, you know, I don't know if it's gonna be five years or two years or what. But anyway, so that's where I was. This is as of, you know, this last year is over in February. Now I do daily 10 steps and boy, I heard two really good special editions back to back uh, where people proposed it's 10 step. One woman, I don't know if you heard this, this one, um, and I hadn't planned to talk about it. I hope I have time to go through the big book. Um, she said, she, she, she listen to the speakers on the Sunday special edition for Vision because I get more out of those than I do even the talk sometimes. Somebody said to the speaker, how do you help people who have food thoughts? You know, how do you help your sponsees who have food thoughts? And she said, she thought, and she said, well, I deal with food thoughts the same way I deal with food dreams or anything else. I, I do a 10 step on them. I said, oh my God. That's a novel thing. Do a 10-step on a food thought. You know, where am I being selfish, dishonest, resentful, and afraid? Because that's probably why I'm having the food thought, right? So anyway, that and then the next week, there was another big special edition on the 10-step. The and so I am really seeing how important that 10-step is, even though I've been seeing it for five years since I did that big book go through with this woman in 2013. It's just becoming richer and richer to me. And then I do 11 step and, you know, 
I do what they say to do in the morning. I do what they say to do at night, and I try to do what they say to, I mean, I try to do what they say to do in the morning. I try to do what they say to do at night, and I try to do what they say to do during the day. And I've seen over the years how the 10th and the 11th step are so, so intertwined. So anyway, and I, those of you who know that I try to carry this message, well, then the 12th step, I wanted to say this. The 12th step has a promise. Right in the step it says we're going to have a spiritual awakening as the result of the steps. And there's two parts to the 12th step, just like there's two parts to the first step. I try to carry the message to others, and I practice these principles in all my affairs. It's a continuous loop, right? You never stop. So there you go. That's where I am today. Um, and if you want to add, you want to find out how imperfectly I do this, just ask my husband. <laughs> <laughs> or ask the woman I send my 11 steps to every night, because, my written ones, because... But no morbid reflections allowed. No morbid reflection because it diminishes my usefulness to God and my fellows. And I just need to learn my lessons and move on. Anyway, um, so powerlessness in the doctor's opinion, and I will stop even if I don't finish it all. Uh, page 20. Oh, I don't need this. Right, I wrote it all here. Page 28, XXVII, men and women drink because they like the effect produced by alcohol. Every time I ate to take off the edge of my sensitive emotions, and I was a very, I am very sensitive, I would venture to guess that probably most of us are pretty sensitive. Um, overly sensitive, maybe, but I can only speak for myself. I activated my disease every time I ate to take the edge off, and that's what I was doing. I was eating to take the edge off. I couldn't stop once I started, and because I didn't realize that it was the substances and behaviors that caused the binges, I didn't even know to stay away from them. I didn't know to stay away from them. And of course, the worst part is the twofold, of the twofold illness is that even when I did abstain from them because I wanted to lose weight, I didn't abstain from them because I thought they were causing a problem, honest to goodness. Um, but I wanted to lose weight. Um, I felt compelled to go back to them any time there was a strong emotion. So that's my powerlessness. And so on and on. And on page 29, XXIX, this was repeated over and over unless the person can experience an entire psychic change. However, the paragraph after that packs a really powerful promise. It says, once a psychic change has occurred, the very same person who seemed doomed finds himself easily able to control his desire for food. The only effort necessary being that to follow a few simple rules. And believe it or not, I'm going through this with two people right now, and we're just about here in the big book. We just started Bill's story. And somebody, she said to me, oh, this is a newbie. What are the rules? And I said, the 12 steps. I mean, it was such a perfect question. <laughs> you know? It's like I, she, prompt, she was perfect on the prompt. So as a summary of the doctor's opinion, that was fast, I have a twofold illness. I cannot start eating my trigger foods without setting off the craving. And one bite never satisfies, it only intensifies the craving. I learned that from hearing people talk because I don't think it says it that exactly in the um, doctor's opinion, but that's the essence of the doctor's opinion. One bite never satisfies, never, it only intensifies. And normal people, they have a hankering for something, they have a bite, they go, ah, and they're done. And I go, I'm off to the races. That's what I do. I don't even get the ah in there. Um, I have a mental obsession, a peculiar mental twist. I love that phrase. 
and it tells me this time it won't be so bad, or who cares anyway, it's only food, it's only a cookie, it's only a this, it's only a that. So therefore, I am powerless over my food problem, and so what do I need if I'm powerless over my food problem? I need power. Um, I put the food down, okay, right? And then I feel restless, irritable, and discontent. I can't stand the discomfort of life not going my way, ever. And I think, it's not so bad, or who cares anyway? Or I think, I start acting out and acting mean to, to, to people around me when world, the world isn't going the way I like it to be. I'm powerless over my emotions. Again, I'm powerless over my emotions. What do I need? I need power. So on to Bill's story, it's in two parts. The progression of his disease and the beginnings of his recovery. Lots of warnings in the first part of it and lots of promises in the second. The first seven pages of Bill's story talk about Bill's powerlessness. How drinking went from fun to slavery for him. And that's exactly what happened to him. If you read that story very carefully, and that's what happened to me. My food when I was a teenager was lots of fun. It really was. I remember, and I shared this at the meeting I went to yesterday, the first time I earned extra money on my own, and I went out and bought a family-sized package of candy and hid it in my underwear drawer. You know, like, that was so fun. Because I was independent. Seriously, it was. it was. I was independent. I didn't have to ask anybody for a piece or permission. or It was mine. <laughs> that was fun. <laughs> By the time I was binging my guts out before I came into OA to pain and to eating crap that I didn't even like because it wasn't nailed down, that was slavery. So anyway, um, so Bill's powerless. Oh, so then on page eight, Ebby comes along, and Ebby was able to do what Dr. Silkworth couldn't do for Bill. Bill was able to see with his own eyes and hear with his ears that his old drunkard friend was genuinely changed. So Bill's powerlessness propelled him to consider, to consider the source of power that Ebby offered. Because remember, when he was reading, you know, he was thinking about, oh, He's a little cracked about religion. Remember he said that at the beginning. But he only had to consider the source of power. And that's all he had to do was consider it. And in pages 9 through 12, that's what he does. He, he, um, he's considering it until Ebby says the magic words that gives you and me, all of us, permission to be here today. He said, why don't you choose your own conception of God? That's all he needed. That's all you and I needed. We just need to be willing to choose. We don't even have to choose it. Just be willing to. There you go, powerlessness. I need power, so maybe I can consider some power that's not me. And on page 13, Bill moves quickly through the steps, through 3 through 11. Powerlessness is propelling him every step of the way. And then on the bottom of page 13, it says, My friend promised when these things were done, I would enter upon a new relationship with my creator, that I would have the elements of a way of living which answered all my problems. Simple but not easy, a price had to be paid. It meant the destruction of self-centeredness. Oops, more powerlessness. I'm so, I'm so powerless over my self-centeredness. I need power. I must turn in all things to the Father of Light. How? So there you go to the bottom of page 14. My friend emphasized, oh, so, so I use my powerlessness to take the steps. 
And then my friend emphasized the absolute necessity of demonstrating these principles in all my affairs, particularly was it imperative to work with others as he had worked with me. I'm powerless. I need to act as if I believe in the necessity of all these things. I'm powerless. I have no choice. I'm powerless. So at there's a solution, page 24. At a certain point in the eating of every compulsive overeater, they pass into a state where the most powerful desire to stop eating compulsively is, is of absolutely no avail. I'm powerless again. I don't even have the kind of defense that keeps me from putting my hand on a hot stove. How many of you identify with that? None of us would touch a hot stove, but how many times did I go back casually to eat again? But I, didn't li I don't like the self-searching. I don't like the leveling of my pride. I don't like the confession of my shortcomings, which the process requires for the psychic change. I'm powerless. The process hurts too much. I don't have my medication of food, so I'm, everything feels so bad. Seeing my character defects is too painful. I guess I'm powerless again. I need power. The promise on page 25 in that chapter, we have found much of heaven and have been rocketed into a fourth dimension of existence of which we have not even dreamed. Why? Because we were powerless and we reached out blindly for power and we acted as if it would work for us. So I have more to share, but I'm not going to. I'm just, oh, actually, I'm almost at the end. Well, that's not too bad. Here we go. So I have to fully concede to myself that I'm a real compulsive overeater. It's the first step in my recovery. The delusion that I'm like other people or presently has to be, has to be smashed. I just want to quickly share a story from yesterday's meeting that I was sharing with the ladies that I drove up with. Yeah, uh, there was a woman at the meeting yesterday who I believe has good recovery, um, who eats an item that I know, I know in my heart, I cannot eat. But she eats it in her abstinent recovery. And she shared it. She'd been in a, a big event, and she had a piece of this. And a piece of me thought, you know, I've been abstinent for a long time. <laughs> you know, I know I could probably have a piece. <laughs> well, then notice the probably. I could have a piece, and it would be OK. Just what? And then I went, are you crazy? <laughs> How many times? First of all, maybe you could, and maybe for a year you could have a piece for, uh, for special occasions. But honey bunny, uh-uh, you are the real deal. You were, you were eating stuff that, that made you sick. You were eating, you know what I was eating, because you guys were doing the same thing. So anyway, I have to remember that today, even if I see other people around me, even in program, doing things that I have to be true to myself. And I don't mean that in a bad way. There are people, I sponsor a woman who can't eat something that I could eat, and, uh, and she eats something I don't eat. I mean, it doesn't matter. It's, I have to be true to myself. So once more, I'm just going to just go on. Oh, just quickly tell you that all the guys in the next chapter, you know, uh, the Jay Walker and Fred and Jim and, and wait, there was one more, the man of 30, they were all powerless. And they didn't perfect their, their lives by working the rest of the steps. They needed power. So once more, the alcoholic or the compulsive eater at certain times has no effective mental defense against the first drink. His defense must come from a higher power. And from the powerless of step one, I reach for power, and I take the action that um, I take step two, 
to help me reach for power. I take step three to turn to that power for direction. I take step four, four, steps four through seven to identify and clear away the sludge that was the root of my problems and the cause of my angst. I, I take steps eight and nine to get right with the people in my life. I take step seven to keep cleaning that sludge up, uh, the everyday human emotions that just build up. Uh, I take step 11 to, to pray and meditate and improve my conscious contact with God. And I take step 12 to practice the principles in all of my affairs and be of service because I'm powerless and I need power. So thanks for letting me share. Thanks for sharing. Hi, I'm Marta L. Um, I've been living in recovery for four and a half years now. Um, I came to OA for the first time in 2009 when I moved to this country. Um, I felt like I was actually quite well put together. I had done a lot of work on myself and I felt like this obsession with food was like the last thing that I needed to take care of. So I walked into a meeting and um, and the meeting that I, it was in New England and the meeting I went to was really had a abstinence on a pedestal. I didn't actually, you know, I looked at the steps, didn't resonate with me. Um, I looked at the step nine, I'm sorry, I'm step one, and, um, you know, especially that part about uh, our lives being unmanageable, and I felt like this completely doesn't relate to me, like my life is really good, it looked great on paper, and um, I didn't really uh, resonate to that, uh, with that part. And, you know, I'm thinking about in the big book on page, in the doctor's opinion, it says uh, to them their alcoholic life seems the only normal one. And that's, that's back then my alcoholic life that later on I came to appreciate how uh, unhealthy and insane it was. Back then it seemed completely like a normal life. Um, I... Uh, I quick, what did resonate with me is the allergy of the body. I realized out of the sudden they, uh, my sponsor put me on a food plan and I realized for the first time in my life I was able, like I was, like I got cleared from my uh, obsessions with the food. Um, and I thought that was it. Uh, so I thought, you know what, as long as I eat, as long as I follow my food plan, uh, I will be fine. And uh, so I was able to stay abstinent uh, and I was able to... Um, followed the food plan, I was able to lose a lot of weight. And, you know, I completely uh, missed the point that, um, you know, that it talks in that big book that uh, the elimination of our drinking is just the beginning. Like, to me, that was it. And, you know, and back then, in my disease, what I took from OA, and, you know, I have to say, eventually I left, uh, because there was notes talking about, um, there was no talking about the steps. My sponsor didn't encourage me to do the steps. Like it was like a daily check-in for me to vent. Um, and you know, and you know, it's funny because what I took from it is that overweight people, which you know, I had been up to this point, I had been overweight all my life. That overweight people have character defects. And now I'm skinny, so I better stay away from overweight people because they're... They have, <laughs> and so, however crazy that sounds, that's, that was my takeaway. Uh, <laughs> uh, you know, I'm thinking, you know, a person... Like, I'm thinking about being a dry drunk back then, you know, being uh, not having my... Uh, 
I, the food was down, so I wasn't really, uh, so I was a wreck. And I, I caused a lot of emotional damage back then that I eventually had to make amends for. Uh, because I think back then I'm thinking, you know, it probably would have been better if I had still been in the food because I was, you know, I was not a nice, you know, I was very hypersensitive. I was not a nice person without, uh, without the food. Um, fast forward, you know, eventually I got pregnant and my abstinence, you know, slowly went out of the window and... It went out of the window, kind of in a way, you know, the boundaries around food started loosening up and, you know, no, I wasn't doing sugar, but maybe I could do a little bit of like a natural sugar and it's, you know, and the progress, it just kind of happened. And then I uh, picked up a book about um, some, I don't know if it was mindful eating, but something how, you know, if I eat enough, um, if I have enough vitamin D or something, I will be fine. And if I have omega-3s, you know, and if I don't restrict, I will be fine. And, you know, the, the rest is history because I truly do have um, serious allergy of the body and it's very black and white for me. Um, and, uh, and I'm very, very convinced of that. Um, the part that I really had to grow into is how my life uh, was unmanageable. And I mean, like, how powerless I was over everything else in my life and um you know and i'm thinking about uh the progression of the disease so i had my daughter and of course the in, during the postpartum period i gained more i gained a lot of weight and i just was feeling miserable um and i remember thinking i should go back to OA, but thinking you know what i want to have another child and there's no way i can be pregnant and go through this program and, you know, be on a food plan and, you know, and there were all those excuses, I don't have time, this, this and that. And finally, you know, fast forward, I remember what I experienced as my rock bottom. Um, I remember going for a walk and feeling absolutely miserable, like my life was so filled with angst and turmoil. And I remember kind of thinking, I really was convinced that this is a part of human experience, that we basically, that we are based, that that's life, that you just basically, that life feels unbearable and you just have this internal angst and that's, it is what it is. You know, there were so many poets who were writing about it and I thought, you know, this is like a universal experience. And I remember having the sense, and my life on paper looked good. You know, I had a husband, I had a daughter, you know, we, it, on paper it really looked good. You know, I had a good job, all of it. And I, every morning I would wake up and feel like, you know, I want this day to be over. Uh, and then I was thinking, you know, I wasn't actively suicidal, but I was thinking, you know what, I, um, I'm kind of waiting for this life to be over. And that's, and I remember walking and thinking, gosh, this is, this was really my rock bottom. This time, you know, and I was overweight and all of it, and you know, my clothes didn't fit, and it was uncomfortable to be walking and doing all those things. But I think it was like this unbelievable emotional pain when I realized I cannot go on like that. This is way too painful. So in January, um, January 1st, 2015, I went to a New Year's Eve party that had, you know, I had been going to, and that was the last time when I, um, when I went for it. And I remember kind of 
you know, binging on the sweets and um, and feeling out of control. And on January 2nd, I had, you know, I went back on my first food plan and I've been following it since that day. Um, and then I quickly went to a meeting and I found a sponsor and, um, and have been living in recovery since then. Um, you know, and I, you know, and I'm thinking that um, what really jumps at me is, you know, in the in those first few chapters that I mean, we feel that the elimination of our drinking is just the beginning. A much more important demonstration of our principles lies before us in our respective homes, occupations, and affairs. All of us spend uh, spend much of our spare time in the sort of effort which we are going to describe. So this time around, I. Um, you know, thank God I did the steps, you know, I worked the steps. I have to say that I was only 51% teachable. Like there was, I was very skeptical. Um, the idea that there is, you know, that there is a spiritual power that is going to restore me to sanity. You know, I wasn't fully buying it. And you know, and that's okay because it still worked, you know. And, um, and I think that over the past, four and a half years, my life has been transformed and I, I have been transformed. I've had a psychic change and um, my recovery today looks very, very differently than it did four and a half years ago, four years ago, three years ago, and so on. Um, and I think that what's, um, what really is feels crucial to me today that, you know, I put down the food and Today, my recovery, you know, and I, you know, there's certain things I need to do, uh, and I still have the allergy of the body. I will never get rid of that. You know, I will always be um, a compulsive overeater. But if I do certain simple things, um, then I have all this space to, you know, you know, it's just the beginning. You know, like it's just putting down the food. It's just the beginning, and then. Um, and then I have my higher power to face life and, you know, and be held by it. Um, um, you know, I think that the, I'm, I'm thinking also, you know, the notion of powerlessness and, you know, it wasn't only, it wasn't only the food I was powerless over and I'm still powerless over a number of different things. I think I was unbelievably powerless over life. And um, the difference back then was that I thought that I, um, you know, I, I thought I was on my own with it. I didn't, you know, I was feeling absolutely hopeless in a way because at that point I knew that people, you know, people had their limitations, that there is no one who's gonna save me or give me a purpose in life. Um, and, um, and I'm thinking with the, uh, you know, uh, when I admitted I was powerless and I realized that I really needed guidance and help, things started really shifting around for me. And, um, you know, in the big book on page 15, um, it says, um, uh, 
Many times I have gone to my old hospital in despair. On taking it to a man there, I would be amazingly lifted, at and, uh, lifted up and set on my feet. It is a design for living that works in rough going. So I want to spend a couple minutes talking about this design for living. So um, before I came to the program, I really didn't know how to live my life. I didn't know what, like, what should be my guide. You know, I was guided by very distorted uh, principles and values. I think I was guided by um, my desire to be liked. I think I was guided by my desire to get external uh, recognition. And as you know, that's impossible because, you know what I mean, like one, you don't control what other people think of you, two, um, you don't really have power over it. Uh, but that's where I was. So, um, and I was feeling very powerless over it because I didn't think I was very successful at it. Um, and then this big book gave me the design for living and that works in the rough going. And, um, you know, and my life has changed tremendously. I'm going right now through a very rough patch in my life. And, um, and the difference is that, you know, I'm going through it in recovery, which means that I'm dealing with it very, very differently than I would have um, otherwise. I completely, you know, I surrender. I realize that I'm powerless over an unbelievable amount of emotional pain. Um, and I just, invite God and, and I, you know, and I say, God help. Um, and that's very, very different. Um, and even though it has been quite rough for me, the difference today is that I don't have this internal turmoil. And I think that on some level, I'm okay with God and I'm okay with my fellows and I'm okay with myself. And, you know, and I invite God to my other pain. Um, so, uh, so I'm thinking, um, what else I would like to mention here? Um, you know, uh, oh, I want to go back to coming, me coming back to OA. Uh, so I actually ended up having a second child this time in recovery. And, you know, I don't know if, you know, I had mentioned that, you know, I thought going through pregnancy was absolutely impossible in, uh, and being on a food plan. Well, that didn't turn out to be the case. And with God's help and, you know, and again, I felt powerless over a number of different uh, things. I felt powerless over morning sickness and all kinds of different unbelievably difficult things that happened during my pregnancy. Um, and I'm really forever grateful that I stuck with the, you know, that I stuck with the program and that I worked, um, that I worked the program. And because this time around, my postpartum experience was very different. It was a one, 180. Um, and one thing that I want to say about this, um, this period of time, and I'm thinking about this design for living and this simple uh, set of rules that, you know, I am powerless over a number of different things that happen in my life. I really am. Uh, but what I do have control over to some extent is if I apply those principles, if I work the steps, if I live in 10, 11 and 12 every day, I guess that's my part. Um, that's my part of, you know, what I need to do. And the rest I leave to God. Um, and over those past four and a half years, you know, there were a lot of things that 
felt bigger than a me. There were a lot of things I uh, felt powerless over and felt defeated by to some extent. Um, I can give you an example when I was working the steps for the first time and I was on step four. Um, uh, I, you know, I was diagnosed, well, I was told I had a miscarriage and I remember thinking like, oh my gosh, I am crushed and there's no way I'm going to be looking at my side of the street. Like I wanted to sit in the self-pity and I thought, I remember talking to my sponsor back then and thinking like, there's now like, just kind of thinking, just leave me alone. <laughs> you know, I don't want to, you know, I really don't want to be doing it. And you know, it's really a miracle that I didn't quit. It really is because, well, guess what? Like my son was actually born completely fine. Um, and it didn't turn out to be a miscarriage. You know, it was a crazy story because they told me to have a DNC and kind of remove the dead fetus and you know uh eight months later or so he was born so that was a miracle um and and i'm so glad i actually stuck with the program and i worked it and today uh again i feel so powerless over a number of different things in my life uh but i know i am i know i'm powerless and uh and i know what i need to do uh, and that I, I know that I have to invite God to everything into my life. Um, and I want to read from page 11. Um, uh, okay, uh, the last paragraph. Uh, that floored me. It, bega uh, it began to look as though religious people were right after all. Here was something at work in the human heart which had done the impossible. My ideas about miracles were drastically revised then. Never mind the musty pass. There sat a miracle directly across the kitchen table. He shouted great tidings. So, you know, I absolutely love the idea of miracles because I think that um, one thing I want to say, four and a half years ago, I was very skeptical very judgmental, unbelievably skeptical. You know, I wasn't, you know, I thought that people who concentrate on the positive were just really lacking in intelligence. That, you know, <laughs> that, uh, that, you know, the proper way to be is to point out on everything that it's not working. Um, so, <laughs> uh, so, you know, so if when someone talked about miracles to me, I would roll my internal eyes and be like, okay, whatever. Uh, and today, it's, you know, it's funny because I kind of sometimes don't recognize myself when I actually talk to miracles. But, you know, I have so many miracles, like, on a daily freaking basis. It's actually unbelievable. You know, it's like I've had huge miracles in my life, really huge miracles in my life. You know, the fact that I eat the way I do and, you know, all of it, this is miracle number one, not the most important. But the fact that right now... I feel at peace with every single human alive on this planet. It's it's a miracle. It's you know, it's I I went from a place of feeling unbelievable amount of shame over things that either real or imagined that I did, you know, and to a place where I feel at peace with other human beings. Um but you know, so there there are a tremendous amount of you know, miracles. Uh, but even I'm thinking on a daily basis how you know some like I'm powerless and I just basically turn things to God and you know yesterday I was walking in my town and it was really late and I really and I had had a really bad headache and I thought gosh you know 
it's too late to go and get uh, ibuprofen. And you know, and I was like thinking, well, I'm sure something, you know, God, God has a plan, something's gonna work out. And little do I know, I walked into two people that I know, and it was late, so it wasn't, you know, it wasn't also that, you know, and you know, I asked them for ibuprofen, we walked into their house, they gave me ibuprofen, I had a lovely interaction, and bam. And that's kind of how it works. Um, and I have also miracles. You know, the other day I had this huge piece of furniture delivered and I live on the third floor with no elevator and, you know, with two little kids and I'm walking up and thinking, I don't, you know, I'm going to have to stay outside. Little do I know, this nice next door neighbor asks me if I, um, you know, if I could use some help. I don't know if he meant it really, but I was really like... (laughs) uh, But I felt like, yes, I do. And, you know, I'm also thinking about realizing how powerless I'm in my life and how not only do I need God's help, I need my fellow's help. And I went from a place of unbelievable self-reliance and pride and, you know, to a place of feeling like... um, you know, I I ask for help all the time now. Part of it is like, you know, I really need to where I am in my life right now. Um, but part of it is this program who taught me how to reach out to other people and how to taught, uh, it taught me that I need power greater than myself and I need other fellows um, to live this life because life sometimes gets very, very difficult. Um, and I'm not going to go to page 19. How much? Okay. Oh, okay. Um, uh, you know, uh, you know. I want to go back to the, um, the page 19, and uh, we feel elimination of our drinking is but a beginning, and much more important demonstration of our principle lies before us in the respective house of occupations and affairs. I love this paragraph because I, you know, every day I need to ask God to help me with the bondage of self. You know, I'm naturally prone to sit in a lot of bondage of self, especially when I'm going through difficult times. It's super difficult for me to actually be freed from the bondage of self. Um, So I have to ask God, you know, I'm really powerless. You know, I'm powerless over food and I'm unbelievably powerless over my character defects. and, you know, and I think that today the way I practice this program and I, le- and I try to live my life is that I really ask God to uh, guide me in all my, my affairs. And I, um, you know, and that's kind of the path that I, you know, that I try to follow in kind of somewhat imperfect ways. Um, and, you know, uh, and I'm thinking about, um, you know, all the changes that have happened in my life. Uh, you know, just to name a few, um, you know, my life today is very different from what it used to be. You know, I used to distract myself from pretty much everything and um, numb my pain with food or other substances and, and was spiritually empty and spiritually dead. Um, today, I, you know, with the recognition of my powerlessness, I, you know, I come to the, you know, I, every day I have to start recognizing that, you know, I have a disease and it's not only a physical disease, you know, I have 
I'm prone to certain character defects. And every day I have to do something to kind of counterbalance it. Um, so these days, you know, I start the days with prayer and, you know, I've been meditating quite a lot, uh, which has been actually transformational. And I need to stay connected with other fellows, you know, and kind of get out of the bondage of self. Um, and um, I'm thinking what else I can say. Um, you know, uh, you know, I, you know, I, I'm also thinking about, you know, this idea. It's on page 28, the the, the idea of the design for leaving and how grateful I am for this design for leaving and um, you know no one really taught me how to live my life or how to be it's on it's um, it's page 28 we in our turn sought the same escape with all the desperation of growing men what seemed at first a flimsy read has proven to be the loving and powerful hand of God a new life has been given for us or if you prefer a design for living that really works and that design for living it's 12 steps it's very simple you know it's simple it's not easy um and the 12 steps you know that i apply to every single thing in my life and that's actually you know i think that's that is a miracle to me because before i came to this program i spent nearly 3 decades of my life being so confused and lost and i really didn't know how to be a human being I didn't know how to be with other human beings. And um, and then this program, not only did it give me like the normal body weight and all of that, um, but most of all, it gave me like this design of, for living. So if I have any issue in my life, any issue in my life, I know what to do. And, you know, I know I have to do a 10th step. Uh, and... And as I said, life can be challenging, but you know what? I don't feel alone anymore. You know, I have my connection with my higher power and I have my fellows to whom I can reach out whenever I feel the need. And what a freaking luxury that is. <laughs> and, you know, when I came, I, you know, when I came initially to this program, I was thinking, oh my gosh, they want me to do the meetings every, like, you know, how they say you have to come to the meetings for the rest of your life. And I was thinking like, Oh no, I don't I don't know if I'm up for it. Little did I know that going to meetings is such a small part of what we need to do. Uh, <laughs> and you know, but I today I went from feeling like compliant and moving through the motions, you know, saying the prayers only because I have to to like a real spiritual hunger um in a feeling like oh, I want it, you know. And I today I'm so excited about uh, my growing spiritual life. That's actually like the most, you know, it sounds a little bit, um, you know, I sometimes can't recognize myself, but it's very <laughs> exciting. <laughs> uh, it's, it's a very, you know, I have a holiday uh, silent retreat next weekend and I'm so freaking excited about it. And I love talking and, you know, and, you know, anyways. Um, there's one more thing I wanted to say before I, and and it's actually I feel like it's uh, it's escaping me. Um, should um, well I guess I guess it wasn't meant to be. Um, but yes, I'm thinking about the you know having this wonderful wonderful plan of living. Oh, I know what I wanted to say. You know, back then 
you know, when I came to the program, I would have given everything if someone said, I can take away this disease so you can eat whatever you want and, you know, and be of a, and be skinny, blah, blah, blah. And you know what? And today I am so freaking grateful for this disease. And I have to tell you, I really don't uh, miss my alcoholic foods. Like I really just doesn't, um, I feel neutral around them. You know, I can take my kids to get them sweets and, you know, and they're, you know, I don't know if I'm supposed to mention the foods or not, but the sugary substance is dripping through their head. Okay, so ice cream is dripping their uh, hands. And, you know, and my only thought is like, how can I get them clean so I don't get contaminated? So somehow I don't get it on, you know, so I don't get it on my hands and, you know, and somehow don't get it into my system. And that's a miracle. And really, I'm thinking when I talk to people who don't have our disease and, you know, they they don't feel spiritually alive or they feel lost. It's almost I feel like if only if you were only a compulsive overeater, I would tell you what to do. <laughs> and um, and you know today I have a life that is you know really worth living and somewhat free of internal turmoil. It doesn't mean it's always doesn't mean that I you know that I'm always unbelievably happy about everything or that unbelievably content. You know. Uh, still a human being and I still am powerless over a number of different things but you know I think the difference is that today I actually am aware that I'm a pa- that I'm powerless back in the day I really didn't think so you know back in the day I was not really that much in touch with reality and I really thought I could control a number I actually thought I was really really uh powerful um in a kind of in a in a bad way like in a sense that was a tremendous burden um and uh you know and i'm thinking uh, okay so i think i have like a couple minutes left um so yes and i don't want to repeat myself um but i you know i do want to say that uh you know for those of you who are still kind of on the fence you know you don't have to be 100 percent convinced that it's gonna work i really you know i think if you had met me four and a half years ago, I think Laura can testify uh, how skeptical and um, arrogant I was. Uh, but <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, yes, that's a yes. <laughs> I don't want to make a lie around. <laughs> no, it's fine. You know, it's fine because of the program. I can take it today. Like I actually, I uh, I'm more in touch with reality. So you know. <laughs> And um, and I can I can take it today. Um, anyway, so I think that with that um, I would like to end here and thank you everyone for being here. And um, okay. Mm-hmm. Thank you.